Life always plays in a forward direction. It can never go backward. Every season, every second, carries with it its own finality. And at the end of every day, one more box on the calendar has been shifted from the future column to the past column, from possibility to history. And all of its moments, and all of its thoughts, and all of its actions, and all of its behaviors, and all of its words can be remembered, they can be celebrated, or they can be regretted, but they cannot be relived. Life does not have a rewind button. I don't know about you, but a lot of the regret that I live with is regret from when I was in high school or college, grad school. And most of that regret is not over things I did that I wished I had not have done, though I have my fair share of that. There's other things I did not do that now I can't. I'll never forget when I was a senior in high school, I had a friend, his name was Gorm. He was still my friend, even though his name was Gorm. Gorm Ferger was his name. And he was a nice guy. There were about 80 guys in my graduating class, and there were only about a dozen of us that did not fit into one of the pre-described groups, jocks or nerds or uh, you know, bookworms or, or preppies or whatever. We were just sort of normal guys. And Gorm, was a, he was a good friend. And I'll never forget one particular day, it was in the spring, I went up to the uh, senior lounge. We had a lounge for seniors, it had some pool tables in it, some couches and whatnot, and he was up there by himself shooting pool, and so I grabbed a cue stick and began to shoot pool with him. And I had just come to faith uh, in Christ uh, just a few months before that. And I remember the Lord sort of prompting me, hey, you need to, you need to tell Gorm about him, the Lord. And so just in a real low-key way, uh, I shared what had happened to me a few months earlier. And I remember Gorm saying to me, you know, that was real good. He was, he was happy for me, but he wasn't really interested in that. And we chatted for a little bit longer, and, uh, and then the conversation was over. And then a couple of months later, we graduated, and uh, I went off to college. Gorm did not. He stayed in our hometown. And I got word a few months after that, uh, that one particular night he had gotten drunk and he had driven his car off of Lookout Mountain. And he died. And I look back on that and had I known then what was going to happen, I would have done anything in my power to have stopped Gorm from walking out of that senior lounge, I would have done anything in my power to have convinced him of the necessity of following Christ. Had I known what was going to happen, I would have broken his legs so that he could not have driven. I would have kidnapped him and held him hostage in my home for a year had I known what was going to happen. And so now, some years later, I live with that regret. You live with similar regret. We all do. In dozens of different ways, in dozens of different areas of our life. 
This morning we're continuing the series that we started last week called Baggage, and we're just sort of unpacking some of the things that we lug through life like we lug pieces of luggage through an airport. As such, the baggage in our lives colors everything about us. It colors every relationship and every experience and every interaction and every dialogue and every decision. We bring with us baggage into every hope and every dream. We bring baggage into every day that we live on the planet. Baggage not only clutters our life, it actually prevents us from living life as God intends for life to be lived. And baggage comes in all shapes and forms. Baggage is living in a perpetual state of thinking that others owe you something. Baggage is living in a state of, 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 of thinking you're the victim and of not being able to forgive those in your life who have hurt you, betrayed you, stabbed you in the back. Baggage is thinking too highly or too lowly or too much of yourself, as we talked about last week. Baggage is never getting around to working through the issues that you have with your dad. We all have issues with our dads. And baggage is never dealing with it. Baggage is when your regrets take the place of your dreams. In fact, regret is one of the heaviest pieces of baggage most of us will ever attempt to lug through life. All of us have regrets. All of us live with a measure of guilt and disappointment and shame and unhappiness because of what was or what might have been. And if we're honest with ourselves over this four-week series, if we're honest, each of us here can probably relate to one of the four pieces of baggage that we're dealing with in this series more than we can the other three. And for me, it's the one that we're dealing with today. There's a movie called City Slickers that came out a number of years ago. Billy Crystal, in this movie, at one particular point, goes to his grade school son's class in order to teach them a little something about life. He says this, as he's talking to these grade school kids, he says, value this time in your life, kids, because this is the time in your life when you still have choices. And it goes by so quickly. When you're a teenager, you think you can do anything, and you do. Your 20s are a blur. Your 30s, you raise your family, you make a little money, you think to yourself, what happened to my 20s? Your 40s come, and you grow a little pot belly, you grow another chin, the music starts to get too loud, and one of your old girlfriends from high school becomes a grandmother. Your 50s arrive, and you have a minor surgery. You call it a procedure, but it's surgery. Your 60s, you have a major surgery. The music's still too loud, but it doesn't matter because you can't hear it anyway. 70s come and you and your wife retire to Fort Lauderdale. You start eating dinner at 2 and lunch around 10 and breakfast the night before. And you spend most of the time wandering around malls looking for the ultimate in soft yogurt and muttering, how come the kids never call? By your 80s, you've had a major stroke and you end up babbling to some Jamaican nurse who your wife can't stand but who you call mama. <laughs> Life passes by so fast. And when you're young, you don't believe it, and it doesn't even seem true. But the older you get, the faster it goes. It's no coincidence that Scripture refers to life as a vapor, as a puff of smoke, as a piece of grass that grows and withers and dies. According to the writer of Ecclesiastes, 
That's your life. It's done. And what you hoped would be so filled with great things, what you hoped would bring you such enjoyment and satisfaction and contentment and peace, oftentimes does not deliver. So this morning, I want to talk with us about our regrets. First, about how we can actually release the regrets that we already have. And second, how you and I can minimize the regrets that threaten to haunt us tomorrow. So that's where we're going. How can we release yesterday's regrets and actually move on? This is a $64,000 question, I know. And we need to understand this morning that because regrets cannot be undone, because we can't rewind, because we can't relive life, not only do our regrets affect our past, they affect our today. They affect our tomorrow and the next day and the next and the rest of our lives. And as such, we employ any number of strategies to help us deal with, to help us somehow get over, to help us get around, to help us somehow release our regrets so that we can move on, so that we can move forward. But unfortunately, a lot of the strategies that we use to get relief and release simply don't work. One thing we do is we try and bury our regrets. We try and just deny them. We try and just sort of sweep them under the rug. But the deal is, burying the past never works. Like skeletons in a closet, unresolved regrets will always, 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 always come back to haunt you. You can try and minimize them, Oh, it wasn't such a big deal. But if it wasn't such a big deal, you wouldn't be struggling with it 5, 10, 20, 30 years later. You can try and rationalize it. Well, everyone, everyone's doing it. Everyone did it. A, everyone did not do it. And B, even if they had, doesn't mean you had to. Or you can simply compromise. You can say, well, I'm just going to lower my standards just a little bit this one time. That's why what happened happened. You lower your standards once, you're going to lower it twice, and the second time it's going to be easier, and the 14th time it's going to be even easier until it becomes natural. We attempt to bury our regrets, and that never works. So we switch strategies. We attempt to blame other people. If we can just shift the blame, a lot of regret causes us to feel guilty, and, and something that we did or didn't do makes us feel so shameful or so bad that if we can just blame someone else, if we can say, you know, it really wasn't my fault. If they hadn't done that, if they had done that. And so we blame someone else in order to sort of balance out our guilt. It's funny being um, a part of New Community as uh, a pastor here. Because over 20 years, I've seen people leave with amazing regularity. And you can tell the difference between a mature Christ follower and an immature Christ follower in the way they leave a church when they leave a church. Because the mature Christ follower leaves in a biblical way, the immature Christ follower always has to get mad about something. Even though they weren't mad before, they have to get mad, and then they get mad, and then they blame someone. And it can be something really ridiculous and stupid and little, but they have to equal out their guilt in their mind, and so they do that. Blaming others for your regret will never help you release that regret. So we move from burying our regret to blaming others to just beating ourselves up. Most of us in here could teach a course in how to beat ourselves up because of things we did or didn't do. 
we condemn ourselves and we come up with creative ways to punish ourselves. We get depressed. We set ourselves up for failure. But the problem is your conscience, my conscience, never knows when to stop. And so you can't just beat yourself up once. You can't just beat yourself up for a season. Your conscience tells you to beat yourself up for the rest of your life. Trying to bury our regrets or blame others for them or beating ourselves up are not effective ways to deal with the regrets we have from our past. How do you suppose, how do you suppose God might want you and me to deal with the things in our past that we did that we shouldn't have done or that we failed to do that we should have done? I think that the Scripture would tell us, that God would tell us, if you want to release your regrets once and for all, if you want to get past your past, we first of all have to accept responsibility for what caused our regrets in the first place. In other words, we got to stop making excuses. we got to stop playing the role of the victim. we got to take responsibility and say, hey, back then, yesterday, last year, Ten years ago, in that decision, in that lack of action, I blew it. I messed up royally. It wasn't anybody's fault but my own. I own that. Until we can come to that point, we will always look for a scapegoat. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13 says, People who cover over their sins will not prosper. But if they confess and forsake their sins, they will receive mercy. Until we're ready to stop playing the role of the victim and to own what we did or what we failed to do or who we've become or who we have not become, until we're ready to own that, we will lug around the piece of baggage known as regrets until we die. But owning it is not sufficient. It's necessary not sufficient. We also have to take Jesus at His word. We have to take Jesus at His word. What He said about us and about our past and about our regrets, we have to take that as truth. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, the Apostle Paul writing here, he says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation. There is no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're not in Christ Jesus, if you've never stepped across the line of faith, you are condemned in your sin and in your sinfulness. But for those who are in Christ, there is no longer any condemnation now, this is either true or it's a lie. It can't be true on some days and not true on others. It can't be true in some circumstances and not true in other circumstances. Either we stand condemned before the God who created us or we stand not condemned. And Jesus says whether or not we stand condemned or not condemned is based on whether or not we've stepped across that line of faith and placed our faith in what Jesus did on our behalf to pay the moral debt that our sinfulness had incurred with a holy, just, righteous, perfect God. Show of hands on this one. How many of you, how many of you believe that God loves you? How many of you believe that God likes you? There's a big difference. We don't have any trouble believing God loves us. For God so what? Loved the world. And in the back of our minds, we quote that verse, For God so loved me, but He just doesn't like me very much, that He sent His Son. 
And a lot of us live with that kind of thinking. If Jesus were to show up in the flesh and blood today, do you believe He would seek you out? Do you believe He would embrace you as a friend? Most of us probably don't think He would. We know He loves us. We know He died for us. We know He is the key to eternal life. We know He is the key to a relationship with our Creator, our Heavenly Father. But most of us probably don't think Jesus would choose to spend time with us were He here right now. We believe He's forgiven us, but we're not really sure He's forgotten all the things we did or didn't do. We believe He's gracious to us, but we always feel like He's still just a little bit disappointed in us. We believe He accepts us, but we never feel like we quite measure up to His expectations. No, He loves us, we know. But we're not really sure that He likes us. There is not a single thing, we've said this before, there is not a single thing you or I can do to make God love or like us any more than He loves or likes us. There is not a single thing we can fail to do to make God love or like us anymore. Now, don't take that and run with it. In other words, you don't take that and say, well, then I'm perfect. <laughs> no, you're in progress. You're in process. God is working on you. He's changing you. He's conforming you to the image of His Son. That's a process. But as you conform, He doesn't love or like you more or less. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, Paul writing again, he says, He saved us. Christ saved us because of His mercy and not because of any good things we had done. And Marianne Bird writes in a story called The Whisper Test. True story. She says, I grew up knowing that I was different and I hated it. I was born with a cleft palate, and when I started school, my classmates made it clear to me how I looked to others, a little girl with a misshapen lip and crooked nose and lopsided teeth and garbled speech. When schoolmates asked, what happened to your lip? I'd tell them I'd fallen and cut it on a piece of glass. Somehow it seemed more acceptable to have suffered an accident than to have been born different. I was convinced that no one outside of my family could love me. There was, however, a teacher in the second grade whom we all adored, Mrs. Leonard, was her name. She was short and round and happy, a sparkling lady. Annually, we had a hearing test, and Mrs. Leonard always gave the test to everyone in the class, and finally it was my turn to take the hearing test. And I knew from past years that as we stood against the door and covered one ear, the teacher sitting at her desk would whisper something, and we would have to repeat it back. Things like, the sky is blue, or do you have new shoes? I waited that day for those words that God surely must have put into her mouth, those seven words that changed my life. For when it became my turn, Mrs. Leonard said in her whisper, I wish you were my little girl. I wish you were my little girl. God says to every person deformed and misshapen by sin, I wish you were my son. I wish you were my daughter. He says to every one of us who have done terrible things in our past, who have failed to do good things in our past, He says to every one of us, I so wish you were my son. I so wish you were my daughter. And I think for you and I to begin to release our regrets, we've got to come to the point where we just take Jesus at His word. 
where we just really believe that what He said is true, that He really does accept us as we are. And then I think we have to move to actually forgiving ourselves. And this is probably the hardest. Much of the struggle that we have with releasing the past comes from our unwillingness to forgive ourselves as Jesus has forgiven us. Psalm 103, verse 11. The psalmist is writing here, David. And he says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He says, as far as the east is from the west. In other words, He has so removed our sins from our past from us. He has so forgiven us and in His own way forgotten those. Why don't we? Why don't we? Jesus does. Why don't we? If we're going to release the regrets that so many of us live with, I think we have to accept responsibility for them first and foremost, and then I think we just have to take Jesus at His word, and then we have to learn to forgive ourselves. And that's a process. It doesn't just happen today. You don't click a switch in your brain that says, okay, I forgive myself. Done deal. Let's get on. It's not that easy. I know that. You know that. But it is a constant reshaping of the mind to think about ourselves like Jesus thinks about us. And so a second question is, not only how can we release the regrets that we have from our past, how can we minimize the regrets that are sure to come our way tomorrow? (laughs) I think one of the saddest things in the world is to wake up one day and to realize you took a wrong turn. To wake up one day and to realize you made the wrong choice or you failed to do the wise thing or you missed the opportunity of a lifetime. If we're not living our lives with a conscious awareness of God and God's involvement in our lives, I'm going to say that again. If you and I are not living our days with a conscious awareness of God and of His involvement in our lives, if we're not living with a conscious awareness of Him and His involvement in our lives, we will not recognize our biggest opportunity until after we've missed it. If we are not living with a conscious awareness of God and His involvement in our lives, we will not recognize our biggest mistakes until after we've made them. We've all made bad choices. We've all done foolish things. We've all said hurtful words and wasted precious time and missed huge opportunities and repeatedly deceived ourselves into thinking we know best. Randy Alcorn wrote a book called The Edge of Eternity and the main character in the novel wakes up one day and he just mourns to himself and he says these words. He says, I I realized I'd spent my life humming the wrong tune, dancing to the wrong beat and marching to the wrong anthem. That's reality for a lot of us. So how can you and I live in such a way as to minimize those regrets tomorrow or next month or next year? And there are any number of answers to that question. I mean, just from what Scripture teaches, Scripture says if you and I would just live wisely, (laughs) we would so minimize our regrets in the future. If we just just live wisely, if we would just, it's a cliche, do what Jesus would do if He were living our life in our place, it would so minimize our regrets. 
If we would just make the most of every opportunity, as Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter 5, if we would just imitate God, if we would just walk in the Spirit, if we would just obey Jesus' teaching, if we would just keep one eye on eternity, if we just realize we're not of the world, we're just in the world, if we would just live as strangers and aliens, as Peter tells us to, we would so minimize the regrets in our future. In the few minutes we have left, I want to... I talk to you just about three other ways that I think we can minimize our regrets, and these are not necessarily intuitive. These are not the first things you will think about when you think, hey, how can I make sure I don't blow it tomorrow or next week or next year? First of all, I think we set ourselves up for regret when we assume we can live as exceptions to the rules. We set ourselves up for regret tomorrow when you and I assume that we are exceptions to the rules. God says... Everyone reaps what they sow. And you know what we read when we read that verse in Ephesians? Everyone reaps what they sow except me. That's how we read that verse. Everyone reaps what they sow, God says. We say, yep, you're exactly right, God. Everyone reaps what they sow except me. I'm above the rule. If Satan can just get us to believe that, if he can just get us to buy that lie, he's won. He has won that battle. If he can just get us to believe that we are the exception for whatever reason, because we think we're smarter or because we think we're better or because we think we're more in control or because we think we've covered all our bases or because we think we've thought this thing through or because, because we think we know best. If he can just get us to believe that everyone will reap what they sow except for you and me. If he can just get us to believe that and then to act on that. He has just set us up for a lifetime of regret. If only I had it to do over. If only I had listened sooner. If only I could erase the past. If only I could hit the rewind button. If only I had listened better in class. If only I hadn't lied. If only I hadn't cheated. If only I hadn't gossiped. If only I had spent more time doing this. If only I'd spent less time doing this. If only I hadn't dated that person. If only I hadn't gone into business with that person. If only I'd watched less TV. If only I'd read more books. If only I'd spent more time learning who God is and interacting with Him. If only I had spent more time with my kids. If only I had not gotten so far in debt. That's the regret we live with. Because we think we're the exception to the rules. How do you minimize regret tomorrow? You realize you're not the exception. I'm not the exception. We will reap what we sow. And so much of our regret is just the working out of that basic 101 principle. You reap what you sow. A second way that we can minimize regret that might not seem the most intuitive, is that we set ourselves up for regret when we choose the wrong friends. We set ourselves up for regret when we choose the wrong friends. One of the most common factors in all of our regrets is other people. Friends and family and spouses and kids and boyfriends and girlfriends and co-workers and neighbors and teammates... When we choose friends who are not walking with God, hear me out on this, when we choose friends who are not walking with God, when we choose to develop deep relationships with people who are far from God, when we choose to date people who are not walking with God, when we choose to marry people who are not walking with God, when we choose to involve ourselves in increasing ways 
with people who are not walking with God, we have to realize it will not go well with us. It will not go well for us. Now, again, don't misunderstand me here. One of the ways, one of the ways that God wants His love and His influence disseminated in the culture and in the world and in society is for Christ followers to be salt and light everywhere they go with everyone they're with. I'm all for developing relationships with people who are far from God in order to see them step across the line of faith. I'm all for developing friendships with people who are far from God if my primary objective is to help them understand the grace and the love and the mercy of our Heavenly Father. But when we get so deeply involved with people who do not love God, who do not walk with God, who do not have His values, who do not follow Him, who do not believe that He is true when He says what He says in the Word, when we get so deeply involved with people in business or romantically or in hanging out or in marriage or in embracing their lifestyle, it is always the unwise thing to do according to the Bible. And if you think you're an exception to this, you did not listen good while ago. We are not exceptions to this. You don't have this under control. You're not so morally superior that you can interact at deep levels with unbelievers who do not embrace your God and not be affected negatively by it. This is why, this is why. God was so adamant in the Old Testament that His chosen people, the nation of Israel, would have nothing to do with pagan nations. Was it because God didn't love pagan nations? No. It was because God knew that whenever the nation Israel, His chosen people, interacted and intermarried and got really deeply involved with in business or romantically via family units, whenever they got real connected to people who did not love and walk with God, it was inevitable Israel would follow them and stop following God. And you start in the book of Genesis and you read all the way through the book of Malachi and that is one huge part of Israel's history Time after time after time after time after time. There are no exceptions to that rule. And we come to the New Testament. And now we're not in an age of law. We're in an age of grace. And somehow, some way, we mess our thinking up into thinking that we can now, suddenly, because we have Jesus, do everything with people who don't love God and embrace their lifestyle and just interact with them and get married to them and date them and go into business with them and just be really, really, really close friends with them and in an attempt to see them come to faith in Christ. And guess what usually happens? They don't come to faith in Christ. Usually. Usually you are drawn away from your first love. Usually, I'm drawn away from my first love. It's the principle. It's why God was so adamant throughout Scripture. People who run from God always hurt most those who are in closest proximity to themselves. So if you live with, if you hang with, if you work with, if you're friends with, if you date someone, if you're married to someone who is running from God, who is far from God, who is not seeking and making progress toward God, you will always be negatively affected. You are not strong enough. You think you are. I think I am. We are not. 
They will always pull you away from God. And it will be tiny, tiny little steps. It will be in tiny, tiny little areas. But it will always happen. Dads, if you're running from God, your wife and your kids will be injured by the shrapnel of your stupid decisions as you run from God. And you cannot want it to be so. And you can pray to God, God, please protect my wife and please protect my kids. They're just innocent victims here. But guess what? They will get hit with the shrapnel of your running from God. Moms, it's the same for you. If you're a teenager or if you're a single adult, why do you think your parents and those around you so overreact and so get concerned when you date certain people? Because they know, they know that they're going to be a third party who is about to be injured by your bad choices if you're pursuing someone who is running from God. It is a principle. Not because I say it, but because God says it all through Scripture. You show the love of Christ to people who are far from Him, but you don't get so deeply involved with Him because they will pull you away. And we set ourselves up for lifetimes of regret when we think we're the exception to the rule and that we can embrace and interact and intermarry and work with and get all comfortable with people who do not love God, maybe don't even believe He exists, who don't share the same values that God shares, who do not believe that the Scripture is the Word of God meant for our guidance and instruction, who do not believe that there is a heaven and a hell. And we live with regret. Your motives may be pure, your heart you may think is right, you may be right where you think God wants you to be, but if you get too close with someone who is running from God, you will get hurt and you will hurt those around you. And it won't happen maybe today and it may not happen tomorrow, but it will happen. It's a principle. Kids will pay the price for the rest of their lives because mom and dad were runners. Wives will be emotionally scarred because their husbands were runners. Husbands will get hit with the shrapnel of their wives' detachment because they were runners. Friends will experience painful circumstances because their friends were runners from God. People who run injure the people who live close to them. There's a third and final way that we can minimize our regrets in the future. We set ourselves up for regret when what we want doesn't sync with what God wants for us. We just set ourselves up for huge regret tomorrow and next month and next year and 10 years from now when what we desire, what we really want, our heart of heart, what we want to be true or, or what we want to have or who we want to have, when we what we want does not sync with what God wants for us, it will never go well. You know, in general, we believe all the right stuff. You know, in general, most of us in this room, we have a pretty accurate theology about God and about sin and about heaven and about hell and about faith and about the church and about Jesus and about the Holy Spirit and about spiritual gifts and about all that the Scripture teaches. We're, we're, pretty, we're pretty good at that. For most of us, our theology is pretty biblical. But in the moment when it matters and we're faced with what we want versus what God says is wise, the truth is I often go with what I want. The truth is you often go with what you want. 
The truth is we often don't go with what God desires for us or what He has said is the wisest way to live life. The truth is we go for what we want because we think we know best. We think we're exceptions to the rules. We think we figured this out. We think we've got it all in the bag. We think we can handle this. And we're wrong. It is a surefire way to ensure that we will in the future have to live with regret when we choose what we want over and above what God desires for us. What in your life, what in your life right now is getting between you and what God desires for you? What in your life right now is causing there to be a block between what you so want and what God so wants for you? Maybe it's a certain ambition that you have. Or maybe it's a dream that you want to pursue. Or maybe it's a love of money and stuff. Or maybe it's your reputation that's standing in the way of what you want and what God desires for you. Maybe it's because you've never experienced brokenness. Maybe it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's an addictive behavior. Maybe it's your attitude. Maybe it's your mouth. Maybe it's your love of security and comfort. Maybe it's a fear that you have. Maybe it's a failure that you're afraid you're going to have. Maybe it's a reluctance to surrender. Maybe it's an out-of-control schedule. Maybe it's ignorance of what God actually desires for you. There's a verse in Isaiah chapter 43 passage of scripture that says this this is what the Lord says your redeemer the holy one of Israel for your sake he's talking to Israel here for your sake I will send to Babylon and bring down his fugitives all the Babylonians and the ships in which they took great pride for I am the Lord your holy one Israel's creator your king and this is what the Lord says, He who made a way through the sea, He who made a path through the mighty waters, He who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, stuffed out like a wick. This is what He says to Israel. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing, He says. Now, it springs up. Don't you perceive it? Don't you see it? I'm making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the desert and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. I don't know what God's will is for your life any more than you know what God's will is for my life. But I do know this. God did not intend for you and me, His sons and daughters, to live life dragging around a piece of baggage called regret. He did not intend for us to live the life that He created us to live by being fixated on where we blew it yesterday and what we failed to do yesterday and how we messed up yesterday and who we hurt yesterday. 
He wants you and I to accept responsibility for that and then to take Him at His word and to forgive ourselves just as He, in Christ Jesus, has forgiven us. And every day that we choose to wallow in our regret is a day that we are thumbing our nose at the God who created us, who sent His Son to die so that our sins could be forgiven. Every day that we choose not to deal with the regrets that we have in the past is a day that we are slapping the Son of God in the face as he is being tortured on the cross and saying, you don't know best, I know best. He wants us to leave the past and to stop living in the past because he wants to do a new thing in you and me. He wants to do something in you and me that would blow our categories. He wants us to experience him in all His fullness. Remember what Jesus said in John 10.10? 10, 10? He said, I've come so that you might have life, but not just have life. I came so that you might have life overflowing. Overflowing. The other day I was making coffee in the office and I was sort of in a hurry, but I was in a thousand miles away in my mind and I went back there and the coffee was ready and I set my cup down and I began to pour the coffee into the cup and I just kept pouring. And I forgot to stop pouring. And all of a sudden I felt something on my leg and I looked and it was caught like everywhere. By the way, that's the only time I've ever done that, okay? That's the picture. Overflowing life that's bursting forth. He wants to do a new thing in you and me. He wants us to be able to experience this life that He's created us to live apart from this baggage known as regret. And we can minimize so much of that regret tomorrow and next season and next year and over the course of our lives if we will simply get in sync with what He desires for us, if we will be very, 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 very careful who we develop deep relationships with, and if we will understand and live by the principle, we are not the exception to the rule. The principles are just as true for me as they are for you, as they are for the person next door. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll go home. Next week, um, we're going to talk about that piece of baggage um, that deals with our dads. So I hope you will be back uh, to help us unpack some of that. Um, that will prove to be interesting. Okay? Why don't you stand, and I'm going to pray for us. God, uh, you know us, you know our hearts, you know everything there is to know about us. You're intimately acquainted with our yesterday. And you know exactly what our tomorrow will look like. And there are some people right now standing in this room who are just about to crumble, who are just about to be crushed to death from this piece of baggage known as regrets. God, I pray, I pray that you would somehow, some way. Help them get that baggage off of their back. And that they would realize that Jesus' burden is light. It is not heavy. That the bags He wants us to carry are not bags that are weighty. They are bags that are light and freeing. And God, there are some others standing here in this room right now who are in the midst of making some choices that will ensure they live with regret. 
God, I pray right now, before it is too late, I pray right now that they would stop dead in their tracks and that they would seek You and that they would seek what You have said in Your Word and that they would change course. And we're going to commit that to You and ask You very humbly to work that out in our lives. We love You. And we thank You in advance that in You there is freedom. In You there is no condemnation. You do not hold the past against us, but You have such amazing plans for our future. And we thank You in advance. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have a great afternoon.